Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. My co-host April Dawson is not with us tonight, but we're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. So we thank you for joining with us uh, this evening. There's an old saying which states that if you do not know your history, you are prone to repeat it. That saying has taken on growing importance in recent years in the face of a robust national campaign to block and erase the teaching of African-American history. That campaign has been conducted under different labels, such as the anti-CRT campaign, the effort to ban books, efforts to rewrite teaching standards in educational institution, legislation to prevent the teaching of history, which would embarrass or shame groups of people, mainly white uh, young people. Whatever the label, the purpose is the same, to redefine, curtail, reinvent, and erase the teaching of African-American history. Throughout American history, there were successful campaigns to exclude, demean, and prevent the true teaching of African-American history. These deliberate prohibitions became a critical part of the civil rights and Black power movements, which demanded the inclusion of, Africa, of African-American history in the curriculums of educational institutions and the hiring of African-American scholars. As happened in earlier days of American history, the European narrative refused to accept the reality that African history and its great civilizations predated the creation of America and the enslavement period. Those Africans who were illegally stolen from Africa brought with them a trove of skills and knowledge which were introduced to the American experience and were used by them to make America great. And not all of the Africans who came to America were enslaved. At any rate, our African ancestors taught skills to their enslavers and did not learn skills from them as the false narrator, narrators and narratives would suggest. Today, we confront once again efforts to turn back the clock on what should be taught about racial history within the nation's educational system. Whatever is taught must be fact-based and not based on the distortion of people in powerful positions who seek once again to use it to demonize and distort the truth in history. As we now prepare to return to the school year, we will discuss these efforts and what can be done to resist them. Our guests for this discussion are Dr. Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, a history professor at North Carolina State University, and our resident constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law, Don Corbett. So to the both of you, thank you for uh, joining us for this discussion. Thank you, Professor Joyner. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. 
I want to start this discussion with uh, Dr. Dillahunt uh, Holloway. To uh, can can you kind of talk about uh, because you are a a, a a history expert with a PhD, which is the highest level of learning uh, in that uh, in that field. But how did you become interested in history, and then eventually decide uh, to become a um, a his, his, historian? Yeah, I was. Uh, I've been interested in history, and I think uh, I was interested before I knew I was interested. You know, my my grandfather <laughs> uh, is a, a lover of history, a lover uh, of the past, and uh, has his uh, masters in African uh, studies. And so, uh, growing up. Uh, my my sister, uh, my cousins, you know, uh, of course, my mom and, you know, my aunts, we were we were all, you know, brought up, you know, in in a, a tradition uh, of understanding the past uh, and understanding our roots and our history. But in a more immediate sense, um, I became interested and really inspired by history and, you know, committed to history. Uh, when I was in high school, I was it was 2014 and it was after the murder of uh, Mike Brown. And uh, I was really trying to understand what is the or how did this crisis get to where it is and how can we understand it and defeat it? And the summer of 2014 was a 50th anniversary of Freedom Summer of 1964. And so uh, when I saw that young people were uh, taking on a battle to transform society, that really sparked my my motion and love for history. And then I got to the greatest historically black college in the country, North Carolina Central University. And uh, I had mentors in the political science department at the law school and uh, in the history department. And uh, when I was taking classes with Dr. Hall, it was from a, you know, a political history perspective. We were learning about SNCC. Dr. Hall told us, if you don't remember anything from this course, you will remember the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And so as a student, someone eager and committed to social change, uh, having SNCC so up front and doing a deep study of it really inspired me. So I understood history as as something that could not only lead to understanding, but something that can inspire. And so uh, that's that's how I uh, hope to relate to the profession. But uh, the movement, you know, the African-American freedom struggle, uh, I would say, brought me uh, to a level of understanding that history is important, necessary uh, and something we have to take serious. Well, let me let me go to uh, Professor Corbett. Uh, you know, in, in in light of that response from uh, Dr. Uh, Dillahunt Holloway, how, how important is history to an understanding and uh, preparation of uh, proper legal analysis and the application of the uh, of the law? Well, it it's it means everything. Uh, I teach a like Dr. Dillon Holloway, I was I was spurred by my a lot of my undergraduate courses at the other greatest HBCU in the country at North Carolina AT. And and what I learned there, even though I was an English major, it was those history courses and the things that I had always gone to predominantly white uh, elementary, middle, and high school. So I, it was not an area of emphasis for uh, for us. Uh, so my parents were very proactive in helping me understand about my own history. And then the history courses that I took often as electives at A&T stuck with me. So when I began teaching, uh, especially in a class like constitutional law, 
the history uh, is very, very influential on what the court will do in that particular moment. And some of that, of course, is dependent upon the makeup of, of, the, of the court. Uh, but it's why you can get a decision like Dred Scott, which basically says that the 14th Amendment is not designed to protect or no aspect of the Constitution is designed to protect descendants of slaves because they were never meant uh, to be incorporated into America's societal fabric. And then, you know, 50, 60 years later, you can get a decision like Brown v. Board of Education, uh, which says uh, not exactly the opposite, but certainly <clears throat> uh, certainly uh, speaks considerably at odds with, uh, with the Dred Scott decision from that same body. So when students ask you, well, if the language is the same, what's different about it? And what's different about it is what's going on in history at the time. So in, in my class, uh, because of my own personal experience, which I'm not sure I should always do, I never presume that students know about the historical background that, that drives a lot of these decisions. So we end up spending a lot of time talking about history, what's going on at the time, and, and how some of that influences where the court may come from or where the court ends up landing. And, and that way, if you know more about what's going on with regard to the Vietnam War, then maybe that helps you understand why the court did does what it does with regard to people's free speech protections in the First Amendment. So if you can conjoin those two entities, I think it gives students a better understanding of the law. So I think it's really, really critical to my area of the law. And I think you could probably say the same about several other subjects. As a follow up uh, to, to that, has has the history shaped the law or has the law shaped the history? Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I, I, uh, I think that the history is what ends up shaping the law. And, and sometimes when you see the law try to shape the history, the law ends up pushing back. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but, but I think about a case like Brown, for instance, which basically says that, that the separate but equal doctrine has no place in the field of public education, right? So you can see law in that instance trying to shape how we feel about the past with regard to cases like Plessy and Dred Scott. And what we hope will happen in the future if Brown becomes the launch point for the next set of civil rights cases. But then, Professor Joyner, as you know, we see the court kind of peel back some of its own, <laughs> some of its own aspirations, you know, when it comes to things like civil rights and equal protection and the like. So you see other lesser known cases like Milliken and Rodriguez, which really mitigate what the court was attempting to do with Brown. So it's so it's hard to say uh, across the board that that either of those contexts is accurate. I think you can see some of both in what the Supreme Court has tried to do over time. Well, from the the, the historian what 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 would be your response uh, to to that as you look at it from the historical lens and the historical narrative that uh, that we're dealing with? Yeah, I, I, I would I would have to uh, agree with uh, Professor uh, Professor Corbett. Uh, I mean, you 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 yet you you have the law, you know, trying to uh, trying to uh, uh, assert something, but then uh, repealing back on itself, and I think speaks to. 
uh, how, you know, the law, you know, is not separate from uh, larger societal uh, societal uh, questions. So, uh, yeah, I, I believe, you know, uh, the law has has uh, been used from, you know, from the historical perspective, you know, law has been used to maintain um, a specific type of uh, functioning uh, in our world. And uh, while it doesn't do the exact same thing over time that uh, the end goal always results uh, to be uh, the same or to be within a specific tradition. So, yeah, I, I believe, you know, I believe uh, history uh, shapes the uh, the law. And I think in, in present, you know, we uh, we're seeing we're seeing that we're seeing that uh, as as the crisis continues to deepen, whether it's affirmative action, whether it's what's taught, uh, whether it's the economic you know situation, uh, history is 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 constantly reminding us that um, it it has patterns and that uh it's it's uh it's in step. So we we better get ready to uh, to do something about it. <laughs> well, well, how 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 important is it uh, that we understand those patterns and also be able to identify where in the pattern we are today? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it I think it's crucial to to understand the patterns. And I, I think, you know, one thing oftentimes uh we talk about history and in the larger sense, the the large public sense, you know, people are like, oh, you know, history, I understand this name, I know this fact, you know, uh, but you know, uh understanding people, organizations and change over time and shifts and and growth and up, you know, uh people we we don't engage with that on a on a large, large scale. So we got to really dig deeper into that why and that how. Um, and it has to be normalized. It has to be, um, it has to be put at the center. And, and I oftentimes think about Black History Month. Um, it's so limited to, you know, some of the first is is limited to uh, you know, uh, you know, one, you know, famous person or, you know, this person is black history and not really what it was envisioned to do, which was to bring a serious level of understanding of the African-American experience uh, and, you know, uh, use it to 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 better understand our present and improve uh, the present. Uh, and so I, I think we we use history uh, to look, you know, from from, you know, from uh, some would call 1619 or some would even go back to 1492 and think about the Americas more broadly. And you look at different shifts, change over time, what took place here, there, and what got us, you know, to this point here in uh, in 2023, uh, where, you know, truthfully, the African-American people uh, are still in a high level uh, state of crisis. So I think, you know, this uh, this deep, critical understanding of history beyond the surface level uh, is is crucial, and I think will explain explain the why uh, in profound ways. Professor Corbett, let me ask you. You know, one of the things that we have heard a lot of demonization about is critical race theory, uh, a theory that has been used widely in the uh, legal education uh, arena. Uh, why why is critical race theory important within the legal framework and what are the benefits of understanding the basic foundations from which uh, critical race theory has been developed? Okay, so I know what I want to try to say. I don't know if I'm going to say it as well as Dr. <laughs> Dillon just did. I'm going to give it a shot, <laughs> okay, because I think it circles back to what he just said 
about uh, history being a circuitous route. It's not a straight line. And, and the other thing that we talk about in my class, because the court now is apt to say, well, we have to think about the history and the traditions of the Constitution when we make this ruling. But the issue is whose history matters? Like whose history, what historical perspective are you telling this story from? Because my history and your history may look very different from the history that Justice Alito considers historical, right? So that's one of the things that I always want students to think about when we're trying to assess history and tradition. Now, when you try to circle back to critical race theory, I think that's one of the uh, foundations of that particular course is this idea that, that racism within the United States is very much uh, rooted in the fabric of our society and is still endemic in our institutions. And it's very much the rule as opposed to the exception. And, and that has been increasingly under attack for the last couple of years. And what I will say is that people on the other side of the fence have done an excellent job at basically taking anything that has any kind of a racial tinge to its discussion, whether it's a historical viewpoint about I have a dream speech or something related to the Black Panthers, all of it has been looped or lumped under this umbrella of critical race theory. And because they've been able to successfully do that, I think it has basically created more resistance among people about what it is to teach these kinds of, 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 uh, of subject matter to our young people. Because as Dr. Dillahunt said, you know, one of the, and, and as you said earlier in your introduction, you know, if you, you're going to be doomed to repeat history if you don't ever learn it. And, and if students and young people are not exposed to these ideas and not exposed to the thought that maybe we can do better in the future, then we will end up doing the same thing in, that we've done in the past. And I think we see evidence of that, uh, like you said, in the attacks on critical race theory and some of the laws that I'm sure we'll talk about in Florida, Oklahoma, and other locations. You're listening to the uh, Legal Eagle Review on WNCU 90.7 FM. Our guest tonight, Dr. Jamu Dillahunt Holloway, is a history professor at uh, North Carolina State uh, University and a, a proud alum of the North Carolina Central uh, University, and also uh, Professor Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law professor and expert at uh, the NCCU uh, School of Law and a uh, proud graduate of the illustrious uh, North Carolina A&T. Uh, we're going to uh, continue our discussion uh, about uh, reinventing, distorting, and reimagining the African-American uh, historical uh, experience when we uh, return. want you to stay with us, and we'll be right back. Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The Contemporary Art Museum in downtown Raleigh will be hosting a Sunday market every Sunday in August from 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. The event will feature vendors specializing in delicious foods, captivating art, stylish clothing, and much more. The Contemporary Art Museum is located on 402 West Martin Street, Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. 
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for uh, staying with us as we uh, continue this discussion about the uh, campaign to uh, reinvent, to uh, distort and reimagine African-American history. And I'm sure many of you are well aware of uh, many of the efforts that uh, are engaged in by the uh, various legislators around the country and some uh, boards of uh, education now to uh, ban books and to uh, uh, prohibit uh, the uh, teaching of various topics of uh, dealing with uh, African-American history or the re- really the history of uh, racial minorities uh, in this uh, in this uh, in this country. Um, let me go go back and start with uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dillahunt uh, Holloway, since he is a uh, the, the historian, uh, whose responsibility is it to teach the history of the people? Or in this context, whose responsibility is it to import uh, African-American history, uh, particularly to African-Americans, the other people of color, and even to uh, the uh, European uh, community? Mm-hmm. Now that that's a that's a a fantastic uh, question, and I will say that uh, it is uh, the African American people's uh, responsibility uh, to ensure that the history is being taught and to be teachers uh, of that history. And I believe that uh, it's not just you know professionally you know trained historians uh, who do that. I believe uh, historians play an important role. Uh, but I believe history is so important and needs to be engraved in all aspects uh, of our community, of our society, uh, that it needs to be taught in schools and that it needs to be taught outside of schools. And, you know, Carter G. Woodson, my, my advisor at Michigan State, uh, uh, Dr. Piro Dagbovi, uh, he's a, a scholar uh, of Woodson. Uh, and he writes, you know, about what was Woodson thinking in terms of Black history, Black History Month and uh, how did he build the Black History Movement? Not just, you know, Black History Month, but a movement that is, you know, having Black history be widespread uh, in churches and fraternities and sororities uh, and cultural, I mean, the whole shebang across the entire element of our community and intentionally be uh, distributed uh, for free to these uh, different uh, programs. Uh, but I think it's the responsibility uh, of our community uh, to to teach it, to engage with it, uh, and to be writers of that history. I think we have to continue to uh, engage in uh, various aspects that look at the African-American past. And one thing I say about African-American history, too, is that, you know, it's a legitimate, you know, field of of scholarly inquiry. It's a legitimate field of of study. It was made possible by the African-American freedom struggle, by the student movement, you know, of the 60s and 70s, pushing uh, for African-American history uh, to be taught on college campuses, but as a field, it is a rigorous, is a very disciplined, uh, and is a very scholarly sound uh, field of study uh, that has produced scholarship that is deeply archival, deeply communal, uh, and deeply uh, well thought out. You know, one example I I would like to give uh, is Eric Williams' uh, book, uh, Capitalism and Slavery, you know, written uh, in the 1940s, and he studied a uh, little after C.L.R. James, you know, at Oxford. And he wrote this book that showed that slavery, you know, made possible was the foundation uh, of British, you know, capitalism, of capitalism 
in general. But the, the, the reason I bring this up is that his source material, he didn't write this like, oh, this is an opinion. He used the sources of the empire to show, to demonstrate uh, that it made possible the wealth that we uh, see in the world today. It made possible uh, the economic system of capitalism. And so, you know, it's a responsibility of, of African-Americans uh, to teach uh, what has been written by African-Americans in the university, in the school, and in the community uh, setting, because it's not just an important field, uh, it's a scholarly sound field, and it's based in historical fact field. So that's 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 uh, that's how I feel in terms of responsibility and also K through 12 teachers. Teachers have to you know, there's a long history of teachers, uh, you know, fighting and, and resisting uh, and teaching African-American history when it so-called wasn't allowed. Professor Corbett, uh, as a legal scholar. What does the law say with respect to the true teaching? of the history and uh, how can those individuals who are charged with the responsibility of imparting uh, that uh, history now be uh, prohibited or curtailed in any way in presenting uh, that uh, true history to students, whether they're in K to 12 in uh, undergraduate schools or in uh, uh, professional uh, programs? Sure. So I, I think in the big picture, what people want to remember is that the, a lot of this is going to in, envelop the First Amendment. And what you have with the First Amendment is a prohibition of government. It keeps government from wrongfully interfering with one's right to free speech. Uh, it doesn't mean they can't pass laws that might interfere with your speech rights. It just means that they usually have a really, really good reason. Uh, if they're going to interfere with it. So you start with that, that basic premise. Uh, now, as a law school professor uh, or a university instructor, as Dr. Dillahunt is, you actually have much more protection to engage in this kind of, in the kind of flexibility that you want to be able to incorporate some of the discussion that we're talking about into your day-to-day, week-to-week class lectures. Uh, there's, there's a concept that's called uh, academic freedom, and essentially it stands for this, this basic premise that a teacher has the ability to discuss issues in an academic setting and or to teach or publish findings uh, without government interference, whether that's elected officials or supervisors, et cetera. So basically there's this protection level to discuss ideas in your classroom without censorship. Uh, so. That's what it stands for. And and the Supreme Court has said that college represents a marketplace of ideas, right? So therefore academic freedom would fall beneath that umbrella. Now, Professor Jordan, I think it's different for people who teach at the K through 12 level because they usually don't have that same level of protection to stray from the curriculum. I use that word stray loosely to inject their own views and their own experiences. Uh, so they oftentimes have to defer to state curriculum, state regulations, et cetera. And, and to that end, uh, just as the court has said that, that academic freedom at the university level is a very real thing, the court's also said that public employees don't have First Amendment protection for speech that they make on the job. So again, that's going to impact your K through 12 instruction. 
So when you see laws like this law out of Florida, which um, I think emanated with this legislature or this legislative <clears throat> act called the Stop Woke Act, uh, and then the, how the State Board of Education in Florida developed policy related to that act, uh, then if I'm a teacher in Florida, at Florida A&M, if I'm teaching political science, I might have the ability to stray a little bit to talk uh, about the Black experience in one of my courses uh, based on previous Supreme Court holdings. But if I'm teaching high school at Florida A&M High in Tallahassee, then I may not have that same flexibility because of the difference in my positioning on the on the hierarchy, so to speak. So uh, I feel like I'm rambling. I don't want to talk too much, but but I think those are the those are the basic premises uh, in which you have some protection in some contexts, but then you have very little protection in other contexts. So you have to kind of be careful in terms of where you are and how you present things. Well, you know, let's you know, kind of you know just focus in on on the Florida uh, example because uh, clearly that is a prototype of what we can expect from other states uh, as well. If uh, Florida is really the leader and not a follower uh, in uh, in in that regard, but one of the concerns, and I know here in North Carolina, it has been raised, is that uh, uh, the reluctance or efforts to curtail the teaching of the history that would make uh, white children feel ashamed of their history or embarrassed about uh, the past or that seek to uh, uh, move them away from this notion of uh, privilege uh, within uh, the society and that the teaching of history has to be something that is uh, entertaining and is, uh, is, is, is comfortable. Uh, from a his historical uh, or historian's point of view, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dillahunt, uh, how does that uh, purport to the true teaching uh, of, uh, of history and what is uh, expected within the profession uh, in, that, uh, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the responsibility of a historian, you know, African-American, white, you know, a professor, you know, of color, historian of color is to uh, is to tell, you know, uh, the truth uh, uh, and tell, you know, and that we have a historical responsibility uh, to do that. And so if a society was structured, you know, in a way that benefited one group over the other and that uh, one group was able to thrive when another was suppressed, that's just the historical truth. I mean, you you can't you can't uh, run away from that. You can't uh, teach it any other kind of way. And we see Florida trying to engage in this inaccurate view of the past, this ahistorical uh, and really apolitical uh, view of the past. And, you know, the, the, the Professor Joyner, the piece you mentioned about, you know, the, the excuse they're using that they don't want white children, you know, to feel a certain kind of way. Well, in my view, uh, I think, you know, you, you have to understand, you know, uh, white supremacy and, you know, what has taken place in, in order to, to move that agenda forward. But you also have, and in my view, you have a, a part of, you know, white American history uh, that uh, fought against many of these things. You have people who oppose, you know, different different things. So if I'm teaching John Brown, you know, uh, you should want to feel relate to that history. So there's a, a, a type of um, engagement or uh, a type of history, in my view, if we're, we're being honest, in terms of uh, white abolitionists and, you know, those who are opposed to racism uh, and economic exploitation. 
uh, that should uh, make, uh, you know, white children feel proud that you oppose this, you know, institution. But, you know, what Florida is doing and uh, Professor uh, Corbett really, really hit it uh, on the head is is really uh, causing a a level of, of understanding of shaping how people understand the world in the way that it is, 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 is really very, very dangerous because uh, what they're trying to do is downplay uh, the, the cruelty, the inhumanity uh, that existed with the institution of slavery. And what Florida does, uh, and I don't think, you know, we, we've pulled it out yet, is when you downplay uh, the, the brutality and the role that slavery played in shaping the entire society, you also try and delegitimize uh, our rightful claim for reparations. Uh, and you promote this inaccurate view of the economic system of capitalism. And so you have people thinking, oh, this world was, was shaped by, you know, uh, debate, you know, over, you know, the constitution and, you know, uh, states' rights. And uh, uh, it, it was, it was, you know, uh, a disagreement between Britain and the colonists. You know, you have you have this type of thing I'm playing, not um, not what what really uh, shaped it and, and caused it, which was at the heart of everything, the institution of uh, of slavery. Um, and you know, somebody produced an article which was really good. Now I'll, I'll uh, conclude here, but it was that you know what Florida is doing is the piece about you know that people so-called, you know, enslaved people uh, so-called benefited from uh, slavery, but it's also they're trying to uh, reimagine or uh, reinterpret the causes of the Civil War or what, you know, led to the Civil War and what ended slavery and that it was Abraham Lincoln, you know, who ended slavery. And so they're unpacking that bill, that language uh, from the body that they assembled. And so uh, we're in a crisis and I'll, I'll, I'll leave this. I know I said I was going to leave it at last part, but I'm going to really leave it at this. You know, Carter G. Woodson, you know, he has the book, The Miseducation uh, of the Negro. Uh, but he he said, uh, you know, if a, if a race has no history, uh, no tradition, uh, that uh, we're on the verge of being exterminated. And so this attack on black history uh, should really spark us into action in that that can this can lead to extermination. If a people have no history, no tradition is not taught as being uh, suppressed. Uh, we're we're on the verge of that, and so we we have to be be very careful uh, and re ready to fight. And okay, last thing I promise. But the the, the historian and people who who use history uh, as part of uh, their profession have to be prepared to fight. Uh, African American history, our history, is a very political act. Uh, it has been from the jump, not just recently with Florida. And so, if we're not organized, if we don't be prepared. Uh, to to fight for it to be implemented and to defend it, uh, we're we're in trouble. So the historian better get organized. Well, uh, Professor Corbett, the, the, the book bans that's being uh, perpetrated all over the country today, the uh, uh, Moms for uh, Equal Rights or some some organization like that are pushing school boards now to ban books and typically the that list includes uh historical uh, treatises uh by uh, african americans or it favorable to the african american uh experience uh what 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 legal protection uh present you know that would uh argue against uh, the ability to uh, ban uh, these books from our schools and libraries and uh, uh, places of public uh, 
Well, I don't know. We 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 just hit our break point, and uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, to take our break right now and let that lead back uh, with that uh, question after the uh, the break is uh, over. But uh, you're listening to a uh, riveting uh, discussion uh, about uh, the uh, campaign to reinvent, distort, and reimagine. African-American history. Our guest tonight, Dr. Ajamu Dillahunt Holloway, who's a history professor at uh, North Carolina State University, Professor Donald Corbett, who is our expert constitutional uh, law uh, professor at uh, North Carolina Central University School of Law. And we're going to continue uh, this uh, discussion after we take a uh, quick break. I want you to stay with us and we'll be right back. This is Kiana Woods, and I'm a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. Many drivers in North Carolina who have unpaid traffic fines and fees have their licenses suspended indefinitely. North Carolina Fair Chance partners with legal services, agencies, and VAs across North Carolina to help drivers remove minor charges and unpaid fines from their records. This helps drivers remove suspensions and restores their licenses. North Carolina Fair Chance is free to use and has self-help resources to get your driver's license restored. The service is provided at Blanchard Community Law Clinic located on 225 Hillsborough Street, Raleigh, North Carolina, 27603. Check out ncfairchance.org for more information. This is Kiana Woods with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and thank you so very much for uh, staying uh, with us. Uh, we are continuing our discussion uh, about the uh, reinventing and distorting and uh, reimagining uh, efforts uh, with respect to African-American history in this country, North Carolina just being one state. Uh, where this is uh, is underway, uh, Florida being uh, being another. And uh, when we took our break, we were raising the question about book bans and the uh, the importance of uh, having this history available. And that uh, uh, books are the uh, very important uh, part of the uh, historical uh, experience. So, and we were asking uh, Professor Corbett to talk about the uh, legality of banning uh, books and what can be done to resist that uh, within uh, within our community. So uh, with that, Professor Corbett, we'll, we'll give it to you. Sure, so, so book ban, at least attempted book bans are, are not a new thing, yeah. but what, what is different about what's going on now is that that as a part of this movement that Dr. Dillahunt so eloquently talked about in our last section about the controlling of information that that young people receive, uh, the book bans are a part of that particular effort. And some of those book bans relate to African-American studies, 
but some of them also relate to other historically marginalized groups. There have been attempts to ban uh, books about uh, the, the legal progress of women. Uh, there have been obviously books or attempted bans on, on gay and lesbian subject matter. So, so these bans have, have been, all of this stuff now has much more momentum, I think, as a part of this larger backlash in society to the progress that's been made, or at least the perceived progress that's been made by some of our historically marginalized groups. So the, the bans have really, really increased in number uh, in the last uh, two to three years. So the, the, uh, constitutionally, I think the problem is, the, I think the argument is that these book bans would violate the First Amendment because what you're doing is essentially depriving students, depriving children of the right to receive information and ideas. And, and I think fundamentally, that's where when these bans are challenged in court, I think that's where it's going to become a problem. Now, the Supreme Court hasn't really weighed in uh, oh, it's been a long time. I think 1982 was the, the last time that they had to weigh in on a book ban case. And they found in favor, they found against the ban and basically said that the school boards have a right to play a role in the determination of what goes in school libraries and the like. But, but they can't do that in such a way that undermines the goals of the First Amendment. So you can't just ditch books because you don't like them, basically. Well, that's the only case that's ever gotten to the court. They haven't done that. Uh, haven't had that kind of a case since 19, I think it was 82. So, so again, it's it's another attempt, I believe, to to curtail or shape uh, the history and the thinking about that history moving forward in a way that uh, speaks to certain political and ideological goals. Um, but it's a, it's a dangerous mechanism. And all it takes in some instances is just getting before the right judge uh, that may be aligned with your way of thinking. And the next thing you know, you've, you've, you've got another layer of problems with regard to making sure that people have proper access to history so they can make their own judgment about what they, uh, their own views of society or their own political interests, religious interests, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, as, as a follow-up to that, uh, Professor Colbert, is, is there such a thing as of a, a, a right of students to learn and a right of teachers to teach that's enshrined yeah. uh, in uh, either the Constitution at the federal level or at the, uh, at the state level from your perspective? Yeah, good question. Good question. So, so there was a, a case in 1973 out of San Antonio where the court said that the Constitution does not create a right to an education. Okay. So, federally, the court has said no right to an education under the Constitution. Now, every state has a different uh, viewpoint. So state constitutions may not match the federal constitution, but obviously it would be lovely if the court had, had enshrined a federal right to an education within the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. But that hasn't happened. Uh, in terms of the right to teach certain things, I think that, that takes us back to our conversation about academic freedom, right? Because I would have, and I think fair to say Professor Dilhan Holloway would also have the ability to talk about some of these things in the classroom without government interference. 
But I think a teacher at Millbrook or Inlow High School in Raleigh might have challenges about that because of the influence of the state curriculum and the state board of education. So, so I think uh, context really, really matters here. And, and that obviously can influence the kind of information that gets before uh, our young people. Dr. Dillahunt uh, Holloway, how, 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 do we, how do we translate uh, the need for these rights or the, uh, I guess, endorsing of these rights uh, for uh, children to learn and teachers to teach? Uh, in the uh, his his the history profession uh, mm-hmm. within that uh, community of uh, of scholars who are engaged in that uh, in that work. Mm-hmm. So I I think that uh, takes us back uh, you know to to the to the question uh, you posed in terms of uh, does history uh, inform the laws? Does law inform the history? Uh, and you know I you know we. Uh, reached the conclusion uh, that history shapes the law. Uh, But I want to add on to that because I think it also answers uh, the question is that history shapes the law, you know, not just from like, you know, from an oppressive perspective, but also from a resistance perspective. There, you know, movements have have uh, led to, you know, uh, the introduction or the passing uh, of certain laws, whether it's, you know, Voting Rights Act or, you know, Civil Rights Act or, you know, uh, you know certain legislative, you know, uh, kinds of kinds of things, and so uh, it seems to me that uh, that the historian, the historical profession, um, not just has to get organized in terms of uh, ensuring African American history is widespread, uh, but and also that it's defended on the grassroots level, uh, but has to raise the question of uh, the legality uh, and uh, to get it so that uh, every you know ten or so years. We're not dealing with uh, a battle, you know, to try and teach uh, African-American history or if it can be can be taught. And so I think, you know, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, uh, the organization that, you know, Carter G. Woodson uh, played an instrumental role in in founding, uh, also called the Association, uh, the oldest black history organization is, in fact, in September, uh, we will be uh, in Florida. Uh, and the organization, you know, just put out uh, a statement said we're going to the fight. And so I think we're we're seeing uh, a level of thinking, a direction from uh, the African-American historical profession that is uh, ready to fight, uh, ready to be engaged and ready to use a di- diverse uh, level of tactics. The Howard University uh, Social Justice Initiative through ASALA is actually planning uh, a, 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 a banned book readout. So, you know, gathering uh, to really uh, oppose the attacks on African-American history uh, in real concrete ways. And the theme of uh, the conference, uh, the Asala conference in Florida is black resistance. And so it's, it's happening right on time. And, you know, the, the reason that they want to ban, you know, African-American history, you know, to, to be, you know, straight to the point is that uh, African-American history is a history of resistance. <laughs> it's the history of fighting back. If you're looking at all major elements, you're gonna it, it's 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 engraved into to the teaching of it. whether you're talking about Frederick Douglass, whether you're talking about uh, David Walker's appeal, where you're talking about faith and uh, and you know uh, uh, and the Bible, it's all rooted in resistance. You know, so um, 
yeah, I I I think the uh, profession uh, is is going to have to uh, really get together uh, with uh, with lawyers uh, and have a, a legal strategy, but also a grassroots strategy and a local strategy. So it has to be a national implication, statewide implication, and specific uh, school board uh, strategy. But you know, I, I gave some remarks at a conference of Black elected officials, and uh, I I told them that. You know, the role of uh, black elected officials uh, are, are clear uh, and that's to be on the side of, you know, uh, the fight against racism and all forms of oppression. Uh, and I, you know, use uh, Reconstruction as an example in that it was, you know, African-American elected officials and Reconstruction governments who were pushing for public education. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, you know, made possible in many state constitutions this, you know, widespread nature of public education. And so, given the deep beddedness of public education in reconstruction, uh, we cannot let uh, these school boards, we cannot let, you know, public education uh, and the teaching of African-American history within it be taken away from us. We got to wage a battle in public education and we got to raise, raise, uh, wage a battle uh, independent of uh, the current uh, school structure and teach African-American history. So it's a two-pronged uh, two strategy. And Professor Joyner, if I could add something real quickly to what Professor Dillon Holloway just said, uh, all of which was terrific. I, I think it's really, I don't know how exactly we go about doing this, but but there's so much, there's so much intertwining between what we consider African-American history and just American history in general. And, and the struggle that we've had is, is convincing uh, folk that there's so much value in that larger conversation. As, as an example, uh, you think about how we might teach the history of voting. Like if you're going to go back to the origin of how the vote came about in the Constitution, and then we talk about how that was only meant for uh, white men who were property owners, many of whom had to be Protestant, I think, in order to be eligible to vote. So if you think about how difficult it was for Black people to vote and for women to vote, and at least initially even for white people to vote, and you think about the struggle that people had to had to go through to attain uh, that particular right, then hopefully that would help our, our young people now understand how important that right is in the present and what people had to go through. So, so to me, that's clearly a big part of our history as Black people, but it's also a huge part of American history. And if we think about, especially in the current and the modern day, where now what you're seeing is active efforts to suppress that particular vote, you know, because of the of the results that it's creating ideologically across the country. So all of those things historically inform the present and they can help us determine whether we're going to become a better citizenry and a better country moving forward or whether we're just going to go backward to an extent where we're talking about, like we mentioned in the last in the last segment, how we're teaching about slavery in the same way that it was taught uh, before the civil rights movement and how so many slaves loved the plantation. And after, even after slavery ended, a lot of them continue to stay on the plantation and work. You know, do we really want to be doing that now? I think the answer, I would hope the answer to that is no. Uh, so again, it, it's all of those strategies are important and you just have to hope you have enough open ears and hearts and minds uh, in the right places where we could start fusing some of those two things together where we don't have to have this debate and we don't have to fight so hard about it. Well, let me just also add, you know, I want to get uh, your, both of you, uh, your comments uh, on this, the fact that uh, uh, the uh, history and journey of Africans did not begin 
uh, in the United States or during the enslavement uh, period, that there was a long, uh, illustrious and celebrated history of, uh, of African people long before there was even a thought of uh, the United States of America being uh, formed. And this uh, present historical view seemed to uh, be fixated on the notion that uh, African Americans uh, began in America, and that history uh, is, uh, uh, is is defined uh, as such, such that when Africans were stolen uh, from Africa, brought here uh, illegally, that they brought with them the skills that they taught to America and Americans, and did not were not takers but givers of uh, of knowledge. But uh, as we you know move close to the end of this. Uh, let me just hear your your, your, your thoughts uh, on that. Uh, let me just start with uh, uh, Dr. Dillahunt uh, Holloway, and then we'll conclude with uh, uh, Professor Corbett. Well, Professor Jordan, you hit it right on, on the head. I mean, you know, uh, uh, African-American history extends, you know, uh, well before uh, any, you know, conversation uh, of the Americas. And in fact, there's some scholarship about, you know, uh, that, you know, uh, that argue, you know, those who came before Columbus, because, um, you know, hi historians, you know, break break up that, you know, there's the involuntary movement, you know, of um, of people of African descent, which, you know, is, is largely around the institution of slavery. Uh, but there's also the voluntary movement that predates, you know, uh, that institution where uh, African people, you know, travel uh, all throughout uh, the world. And so, you know, yeah, a Africa is is crucial uh, to 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 how we how we how we understand the African American experience, I, I like to argue that you can't understand African American uh, history without understanding Africa. Uh, and while I was at Michigan State, I had the opportunity uh, to take a class uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Wando Achebe, the daughter of uh, Chenu Achebe, who wrote uh, "Things Fall Apart." She's a, a outstanding uh, historian of uh, African women's history. Uh, she writes about gender and sexuality in Africa. Uh, she she even, you know, pushes us to think about, you know, uh, Africa uh, prior to, you know, uh, real uh, the institution of slavery and engagement with um, uh, with Europe uh, about questions of gender, societal structures and how, you know, societies were, were pushed. And then, of course, you have Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. But you're right. I, you know, when the institution of slavery uh, uh, took place, you know, um, People of African descent had skills that were long used uh, in Africa to build societies uh, and to practice communalism and to engage in diverse, you know, uh, areas of of, of societal uh, structures. And so, uh, looking back at Africa could could really help us. Africa prior to to, to colonialism could really help us in terms of uh, how we how we could you know possibly get out of this, this crisis and possibly structure structure uh, structure our society. So. Africa is crucial. It's important. And uh, you're right. You know, African-American history does not start at the institution of slavery. And um, I mean, and when we talk about the institution of slavery, we have to look beyond uh, the uh, uh, the so-called borders of uh, North America, uh, because the heart uh, of the institution of slavery, one of where it, where it thrived. In fact, they say the first enslaved person in North Carolina was from Barbados. But you got to understand uh, the, uh, the 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 Caribbean, or as you know, some would call the West Indies. You know, uh, that's a crucial part of understanding the African 
American uh, experience beyond just uh, the the borders of the, the United States. And so, uh, yeah, that, that's part of it. Diasporic International is a core part of the African-American uh, historical experience. Professor Corbin. Yeah, I, would, I can't add a whole lot to what's already been said. I'll, I'll share a really quick personal story with you, though. My wife and I uh, spent about 10 days in Ghana last summer. And one of the places that we got to visit was uh, on what's called the Cape Coast of Ghana. And they have, um, and we visited a castle there that was essentially the largest uh, commercial fort that was used for the transatlantic slave trade in Europe. And it was several centuries that that, 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 um, uh, that, that castle was in operation. And, and one of the things that hits you about being there, in addition to the obvious, is just when you think about the number of slaves that, that went through that particular port and were exported, not just to the United States, but to other parts of the world as well, you think about what you mentioned earlier in terms of what slaves were teaching individuals here, but then you also have to think about the, the, the terrible exportation of talent that was forced to leave Africa and go to other parts of the world to quote unquote, ply their trade, right? And, and when people think about Africa now uh, and the stereotypes that go along with, with Africa and what it's comprised of and its economy and the like, well, you can't really think about that without thinking about all the exportation of talent that went on for centuries uh, and think about where those societies could be if those people were allowed to stay undisturbed, right? So, so it's very, very much a part, I think, of our experience here and I think a part of the education process. And, and I'm hopeful that we'll get to a place where uh, that's much more intentionally valued going forward. All right. Well, we're out of time, but take that, Ron DeSantis. Uh, if you want to have a debate, uh, we we'd like to thank our guest, uh, Dr. Jama Dillahunt uh, Holloway, who's a history professor at North Carolina State uh, University and a proud grad of uh, North Carolina Central University uh, Department of History and Political Science, and Professor uh, Donald Corbett, who is a constitutional law expert uh, at uh, the NCCU School of Law. We also like to thank you uh, for uh, spending time with us uh, this uh, Sunday uh, evening, and we hope that you have enjoyed and learned from uh, this uh, this uh, this discussion. If you have any questions, please send us an email at uh, legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this discussion uh, tonight, you can now find it on the Legal Eagle Review. Uh, podcast, or you can direct others uh, to the uh, Legal Eagle Review podcast for a uh, uh, the, for this taping for you to uh, listen to. But until next week, stay informed, stay engaged, healthy, and safe. Good night.